Thanks, guys. That was a beautiful song, and I think it's a something we need to be reminded of. So we offer nothing of our own to God. Nothing of worth do we bring to the equation of our life in Christ. It's all grace. Uh, it's all an answering of our thirst. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Philip Yancey. He said, I have nothing to offer God but my thirst. It's like all I bring is need. And it's interesting. Uh, today, we're getting back to... Remember way back in Ought 20 when uh, I was teaching on Ruth? Well, we only made it halfway through that teaching series. So today, after a brief hiatus for Christmas and for New Year, we're back to our everyday people uh, series, uh, our focus on the life and the story of Ruth. But what's interesting is, as you look at this story, each major character in this story, Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, they all find their entrance into the story uh, for a certain reason. Uh, and Ruth's is need. As we learn more and more about Ruth, we find that her only uh, entrance point into this story is need. There's been real collapse in her life, and she's vulnerable, so she comes into this story uh, under the banner of need. Well, today we're going to talk about Naomi, and her entrance into the story, as we'll talk about later, is complaint. Complaint. I think as we spend time in stories like this, we will start to hear more and more our own story reflected in the pages of Scripture. Now, first, what I'd like to do is um, start by having you consider a statement. Think about what this might mean. Not every road leads to God, but God can travel any road to find you. I'll say it again. Not every road leads to God, but God can travel any road to find you. Do you believe that? Do you think that's true? Have you experienced that? Now, while we like to imagine in our man is the measure of all things uh, Western mindset, we like to imagine that every decision we make or every belief that we hold turns out for the best in the end. Uh, we've lived long enough to know that that's not always the case. Have you ever been so confident that what you were doing was right or what you believed was, was correct? only to have it collapse in, only to be proven wrong to you in some very painful and embarrassing ways. Yeah, we've all been there for the collision between the ideal and the real. Yes, we all have this closet universalist in us, I think, that we all think it's going to just work out good in the end. It's going to turn up right in the end, right? But the problem is we've all lived long enough to know it's not the case. So that closet universalist gets into the, to a fist fight with that closet realist or pessimist inside of us, and it's like a scuffle over and over again. Some people are living lives, uh, they are traveling roads that will not lead them to God. Okay, we can maybe agree on that. Some people are living in such a way that it's not bringing them closer to God. In fact, it's, bringing them, it's leading them very far away 
from God. But here's the thing, what we find in the Bible, it recognizes that fact about our human condition, our human tendency, but what we find in the Bible and what you've hopefully experienced in your life is that God sometimes, in spite of all of our wrong-headedness and our confident misguidedness, in the midst of that, sometimes God sets His sights on us. Sometimes God sets out to find us. He's determined to find us. He will travel into some really dark and dismal places in order to bring us close. Have you experienced this? Have you been so far from home only to find God is there? That God has sought you out? We talked several weeks ago about how God's address is at the end of our rope. You know, the deepest, darkest places. That's where we actually fall into the arms of Christ. Yeah, God will travel any road to find us. In some of the most unlikely of circumstances, unlikely of situations, God intersects our lives and we find Him working out His good and healing ends over and against our uh, the evil in the world and over and against our destructive decisions and our destructive situations. It's almost as if we need to get to this place of extremity before we're ready to actually encounter God on His terms, right? I mean, I don't think God wishes us to suffer, to, find, to have pain, but He's faithful in that in those times of pain, He meets us. We find Him. We're finally... We're, ready and able to put down all of our defenses and our excuses and encounter God on His terms. A good example of God's strange and wonderful habit of traveling any road to find us is found in the book of Ruth. Specifically in the book of Ruth, in the tale, the narrative, the part that's about Naomi. In Ruth chapter 1, we read about a Mo an Israelite woman who is married to an Israelite man, who has two Israelite sons, who moved to a foreign land called Moab in order to escape the ravages of severe, severe famine. So let's go to Ruth chapter 1. It's tucked between Judges and the Samuels, if that's helpful at all. Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem... Uh, in Judah, left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. This man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. They left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that Lord had blessed, the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that, it, that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. 
No, they said, no, we won't. We want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why? Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry anyone else, someone else? No, I, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth, Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to, Jer uh, to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. But she responded, don't, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. So here we see Naomi and Ruth arriving in Bethlehem um, uh, after experiencing severe trauma, severe loss and displacement. When they arri had arrived in Moab, Elimelech and Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion, they married two Moabite women. Two women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And they settled down there, and I'm not sure how long they expected to stay, but they stayed at least 10 years. But after 10 years, everything fell apart. Everything fell apart. Elimelech dies. Malon dies. Kilion dies. And Naomi is left alone. And I don't know if we hear clearly what this meant for a woman in the ancient Near East, for her husband to die, for her sons to die. Talk about being vulnerable, exposed. She had no more male protection in the world. Her and Ruth and Orpah, they were all in a very tenuous, risky situation. This was a big deal in the ancient Near Eastern world where women had very few rights on their own. They had very little standing in the community on their own without a father or without a husband or without sons. Fair? No. But that's the way it was. In our 21st century ears, this scenario can seem weird. It can seem pretty foreign. But this situation is also familiar in a way. And I think we can all agree it's kind of sad. It's a sad situation. Because we know at some level, 
for a variety of different reasons, we know what it's like to feel abandoned. You know what it's like to feel exposed. You know what it feels like, what it's like to be in uncertain and risky situations. I mean, as you catalog your memories, you know you've been there. You've been in situations that make you feel, maybe in just a small way, what Naomi felt. I've said it before, but one thing I like about the Bible, uh, generally, and Ruth, the story of Ruth specifically, is how human it is, how earthy it is, how simple and everyday it is. What I like about the story of Ruth is that it doesn't take place in some other world. We don't have to go to this like elevated spiritual plane to get what's happening in Ruth's story. It happens here. It happens in towns like ours, among people a lot like us. Everyday people. Everyday people like you and me. We become the cast and the crew for God's story. Does that ever just kind of blow your mind? That God wants His great story of salvation to play out in our midst among people like us. Wow. How does that make you feel? Have you considered that? That God's great story of redemption is played out in local places among normal people just like us. Think about it. What changes for you? What changes about the grand story of Scripture, which is the story of salvation, when it starts to sound a little bit like our own story? What happens? What does that do for us? Does it invite you into the story more like it does for me? Absolutely. Eugene Peterson describes Ruth's and Naomi's story this way. He says, uh, he describes their story as the instance of a person uprooted, obscure, alienated, who learned to understand her story as a modest but nevertheless essential part of the vast epic whose plot is designed by God's salvation. As much as we may not wish to acknowledge it, Ruth and Naomi's story bears certain hallmarks. Bears hallmarks that sound a little bit like, their story sounds a little bit like our story. Our story. There's common ground that we all seem to be standing on. Every one of us can more than empathize. We know how they are feeling. We can, to one degree or another, sympathize with what Naomi's experiencing, what Ruth is experiencing. We hear of what Naomi endures. We hear about Naomi's severe loss and her crippling grief. And we do not wonder why. We do not wonder why she feels this way. We do not wonder why then she is broken. Why, these, why then she is no longer able to feel joy. We understand why she understands why she calls herself bitter. It's like, if I've got a new name, friends. My name's Bitter. All that's happened to me, it's made me bitter. We kind of expect Bible characters to do better than this, right? I mean, you're in the Bible for Pete's sake. <laughs> We expect Bible characters to have their act together, uh, to somehow see through their current situation and never get down in the dumps, never doubt God or His plan. We kind of project that onto people in the Bible, right? But that's not what we find. 
They struggled. They struggled just like you and me. We struggle. I mean, look at Job. Job is not just high-stepping through it all like, check it out, world. You know, this is it. They should write songs about it, you know. Put it on contemporary Christian radio, you know. That guy's crushed, devastated, in the pit of despair. Look at Job. Look at Jonah. Look at Jeremiah. Perchance, read the Psalms. Uh, look at the disciples. They all doubted. They all struggled. We are in good company when we struggle to make sense of the story. We're in good company. Maybe this is how we more rightly and more honestly enter into the story itself, is when we admit, acknowledge our own struggle with it. It's telling that each of the main characters in the book of Ruth find their own unique yet very human route into this story. This is what I mentioned earlier. Each person in this story is marked by particular circumstances. Think about it. Naomi is marked by complaint. She comes back into the story with complaint in her mouth. Ruth, her entrance into the story is marked by need. Can anyone guess what Boaz's entrance into the story is marked by? Responsibility. He understands his responsibility in the role that he plays. The role that God uh, has for him to play in this story. Naomi, complaint. Ruth, need. Boaz, responsibility. So over the next few weeks, we will get into each of their stories. But today, let's talk about Naomi. Let's talk about Naomi. Let's talk about her circumstances. And let's talk about her complaint. Her complaint. Peterson goes on to say, Naomi got into the story of Ruth by complaining. She experienced loss, and she complained bitterly about it, had her unhappiness taken seriously by the storyteller, and formulated into a complaint against God. No material could have seemed less promising as the raw data for a gospel, a gospel story than that which is provided in the first chapter of Ruth. What do we have here? A famine, three deaths, three widows, and anarchy. When Naomi returned home to Bethlehem after her 10-year absence, there was excitement and a readiness to rejoice at her homecoming, but Naomi refused the welcome. Why? Why did Naomi refuse their welcome? Naomi was broken. She herself says, I am empty. She comes back broken. She feels empty. She feels no longer of use. She feels bereft of a future. She stops as they're traveling back to Bethlehem, weeping and bidding Orpah and Ruth to return to their mothers, return to their homes, to find a new husband and a new life. My lot should not be your lot because mine is hopeless and I do not want yours to be hopeless. So maybe if you return to your homes, return to your mothers, Maybe there you'll find hope again. Because it's certainly not with me anymore. But they refused. They refused and they continued on together. But eventually, Naomi stopped them again. Why, girls? Why should you go on with me? I am of no use to you. I can't help you. No Things have become very bitter for me because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. I mean, that's vivid imagery. 
that Naomi believes deep in her heart that God looked at her and He raised His fist against her. That God Himself, this good God, raised His fist to destroy her, to clobber her. Have you ever believed this? I mean, this isn't so far out there. They were like, Naomi, what planet are you from? I think we've all been in this place. It's like, I think God's doing this. I think God's the one punching me in the face right now. Otherwise, why would this happen? She says, go. The Lord himself has raised a fist against me. Naomi is convinced that she's being punished. She is convinced that God's blessing in her life has departed. So Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, they weep together, and eventually Orpah is convinced to leave and to return home. But Ruth will not budge. Ruth, it refuses to leave her. She binds herself, heart and soul, to Naomi. She is determined to go wherever she goes, even unto death. It's like, hey, you're not shaking me off. In fact, we're going to be buried next to each other. Get used to it. <laughs> so they continue on to Bethlehem, and everyone is celebrating their return. Everyone says, is it, could it be? Could it be Naomi? It's been a decade. We haven't seen her in so long. Could it be Naomi? And they all, you can imagine, run out to the streets to welcome her home. But Naomi raises a sorrowful hand. And she tells them, don't. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Instead, call me Mara. Call me Mara because God has made my life bitter. Bitter. Grief and pain and loss have a way of changing us. They have a way of changing our name, don't they? All the hurt, all the abandonment, all the betrayal. It works to take our name, to change us. No longer Naomi, she had been renamed Mara by life. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me home empty. No longer am I pleasant, which is what Naomi means. No longer am I pleasant. My life has made me Mara. My life has made me bitter. Let's look at verses 20 and 21 again. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? My soul aches when I read this story. And maybe that's right. Maybe all of our souls should ache as we read this story because here there is much sadness. Here there is much grief. We read it and we feel sadness for Naomi. But me, speaking for myself, and maybe you resonate with this, I also find myself fighting the urge to correct her. Right? You hear what she says about God, blaming Him in a sense. And there's something in me, maybe because I'm a pastor or whatever. But it's like, no, 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 Naomi, stop. You know, I want to correct her. God didn't do this to you. He didn't make life bitter for you. God is love, right? He sent Jesus to die for us. You know the song, I am a friend of God. You know, come on, snap out of it. Does anyone else fight that urge when you read things like this? Like, come on. 
Naomi, really? I'm sure, I'm not sure why, but when things go wrong, our brains go immediately to an assumption that God must be punishing us. I know you're on board with that. Something in our, our religious brain goes right to that weird equation that says God plus me plus my behavior equals punishment, equals pain, equals suffering. If you add me to the mix with God, I'm going to get clobbered. God plus me and my behavior equals punishment, pain, and suffering. Somewhere in our religious thinking, there is a settled belief that when I suffer, God must have raised his fist against me. Why? Well, he is no doubt dealing harshly with me as my sin deserves. Guys, I know you've been to this place. I know I'm not preaching to an empty room. <laughs> it's in us, this reflexive thinking, this settled belief that when I suffer, God is raising his fist against me because of my sin. He is responding to some disobedience in me, and shame is my rightful lot. Call me Mara. Why? Because the Almighty has ruined me. I went away full, and the Lord has drained me dry. I am empty. It is utter foolishness to call me pleasant, for now I am nothing but bitter. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. <laughs> My wife called me on this. It's like, well, that's a good sermon for Valentine's Day, right? It's like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> but this needs to be said. We are deeply uh, feeling creatures. We feel things. We have this emotional capacity that leads us into a story like this. And there's this aching in our souls. The same kind of stuff that makes us feel something on Valentine's Day. See, I brought it together. <laughs> this opening chapter of Ruth is heartbreaking. Heart, Valentine's? See? It's all him. It's all him, people. The opening chapter of Ruth is heartbreaking. But it is setting the tone for something. It is setting the tone for what is to come. It's setting the tone for the rest of the story. I love, for some reason, <laughs> I love verse 22. I love verse 22. They return from Moab. They arrive in Bethlehem together at the beginning of what? The barley harvest. The barley harvest. Do you know what that means? Me neither. <laughs> but it sounds warm and inviting, kind of Thomas Kincaid kind of stuff. Like they come into town, their people are out there with their sickles like harvesting the barley. And you're like, oh, things are going to be okay because they're harvesting barley. I'm not sure. But here's what I think. The barley, the barley harvest is foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing a time of fruitfulness to come. They've been in, a, in, in 10 years of famine, and they heard what was going on in Judah. Good crops again. There was fruitfulness. There was vitality once again in the land of the living. And so they go back home and they find that they've arrived at the time of the barley harvest. It's a foreshadowing of a time of fruitfulness to come. The end of Ruth chapter 1, it lifts our heads if only for a moment. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. What happened in Moab is not all there is. 
What happened to you is not all there is. What you've endured, what Naomi endured, that was not the end of the story. What, what Naomi endured and what she lost is not the whole story. Guys, turn the page. There's another chapter. There's another chapter after that. Peterson says, By being taken seriously, not rejected, not toned down, not spiritualized, Naomi's complaint becomes part of the story. The emptiness of her life is woven into the plot, and in the process is the occasion of demonstrating God's providence. By having her complaint taken into the story, Naomi does not get an explanation of God's ways. Rather, she finds herself in a living, developing set of relationships that extend into the future. In something slight and occasionally, in sometimes slight and occasionally dramatic ways, she realizes that the faithful God, in spite of all appearances, is still about his business, and that frees her to go about hers. So, for Naomi, for Ruth, and for us, Moab's barrenness gives way to Bethlehem's promise. Moab's barrenness gives way to Bethlehem's promise. God's goodness in Bethlehem, which, is, which means the house of bread, God's goodness in the house of bread will provide a new place, a place of new life for us in the midst of God's unexpected provision. Whoever wrote the book of Ruth, be it Samuel or whoever, they were a master storyteller possessing a real understanding of the human experience, a real grasp of human expectations and of God's providence and kindness. Yes, you have to look closely into this story, but there it is. There it is. God's providence and kindness. The author of Ruth's story is masterfully pointing our attention forward into the future toward the salvation that is to come. In Christ, our kinsman redeemer, all hope will be restored. A family will be reborn and our broken hearts will be healed. Many here today may resonate with Naomi in more ways than I can possibly understand. But many here today may resonate with Naomi. You have felt bereft for a long time. Feel like much has been taken from you. Maybe you feel emptied. Maybe you feel broken. Maybe you feel battered by loss, by pain, by grief, and by sorrow. Some of you would even say, yes, what happened to me changed me too. What I've been through, it changed me as well. What happened to me stole my name. It changed me so much that it stole my name. It made me bitter. It made me bitter because I became bitter at God because He's been so angry with me. God's been so angry with me that my portion now is bitterness. Naomi had a choice to make. Naomi had a choice to make. She could stay stuck or she could move forward in hope. 
She took it one step at a time, one day at a time, one word at a time, one sentence at a time. But she got back up. She slowly made the long journey back to Bethlehem, moving back step by step toward home. She kept moving, and I think that's what we all have to do as well. At some point, eventually, don't we? We have to get back up. We have to decide. We have to want to want to move toward our home. It's curious how all this takes place in Bethlehem. It takes place in Bethlehem because our story travels there as well, doesn't it? In Christ, all of our stories lead to Bethlehem. All of our stories lead back to a time of harvest and fruitfulness and of new hope in Jesus Christ. So I pray that as we look into this story over the next few weeks, I pray that we would remember our own. And that we, with Naomi, would find the courage to take that first step, which is often the hardest, but take that first step on our way back home. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for the story of Naomi, which we find in, in Ruth's story. God, uh, human life is, is hard sometimes. A lot of stuff happens. A lot of it just defies explanation. It's actually that, 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 that sense of, a, uh, of an absence of, an, of a reason makes it all the worse. And so God, forgive us for when in those moments we turn our assumptions upon you, assuming that you're angry with us, that you've raised your fist against us and you just want to ruin us, empty us, and make us bitter. God, that we would believe that. <laughs> Please set us free from that too. Lord, we find you're persistent. Your kindness and your providence are still at work even when we can't see it, even when we feel far from home, even when we are knocked flat by circumstances. Your providence and kindness is still there and it's still at work. So, God, speak to our hearts this morning. I've got some brothers and sisters here that have followed after Jesus, but man, they're hurt. They're still walking wounded. They're kind of a bloody mess from what they've been through. And they're not sure they can trust you. But God, just like Naomi's healing was not overnight, Naomi didn't get into her empty, bitter situation overnight, and coming out of it wasn't an instant thing either. But God, she took a ton of steps. She kept moving back toward Bethlehem, believing in a better future. So God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the same in us. Give us the courage, the strength to stand up. And for today, take one step. And then tomorrow, take another step. Lord, we believe, even when we can't see it, we believe that you'll be faithful in that. You'll be with us in that. God, forgive us for all the roads, the wrong-headed ideas that have led us astray. But thank you for your faithfulness in seeking us out, finding us, healing us, and bringing us back home. I pray that you would do that again today. Do that in our time, here in our place, among this people. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Guess what? We're going to share communion today. We haven't done that forever. Uh, so Curtis and Kendi are going to come, and Tony's going to continue playing some music. And I want you to sit with what you've uh, heard from Scripture today, what we've talked about. But also I want, to turn, want you to turn your attention to Christ. 
Turn your attention to God. Because in this, this is like a, a living representation, a, a practical representation of that coming home, that returning to Bethlehem, coming back to Christ, bringing all of our stuff and laying it at the foot of the cross and finding that it's for us that His body was broken. It's for us that His blood was shed so that we might be healed, so that we might be able to step in to find our place in God's salvation story. So, as you prepare to partake today, these are those kind of weird prepackaged ones. So, this could be disastrous, kids. Just don't fight with them. They're don't. Nice they are. Did you try one? Did yeah. you practice? Okay, good. It kind of tastes like melted popsicles, but it works. Well, that sounds all right. Yeah. But as you come and you partake, it's important that you take. Yeah. Uh, it's important that you take time to reflect. It's important that as we come to the Lord's table to remember together that we take time for introspection, to lay our lives before the Lord and say, hey, search me and know me. We've been a lot of places, been through a lot of things, and those have kind of twisted us and, and turned us, and some of us have become a little bitter. Maybe there's an emptiness there that you, we could confess to God. But take this time to prepare, and so that when we come, this is a confession. Like, Jesus, I believe, I believe that you've led me back home. You've invited me into that salvation story, that you, you are able and you are willing to find me and to heal me. So, uh, take a few moments. When you're ready, there's Curtis there in the middle, Kendi's up here. And then what I'd like you to do is get into just your family groups, and if there's friends sitting nearby, just kind of gather around and we'll uh, partake together after everyone has been served.